Hello, this is Jeff Mayhew with Politics and Parenting. This is our first podcast. I'm here with... John Beatty. Thanks for having me, Jeff. <laughs> Thanks for being my co-host, John. Um, so today we're going to talk to you about two topics. Um, first, we're going to talk about the rig system and how we fix it. And uh, John, what else are we going to talk about? We want to talk about the connected system. And I think it's specifically the economy and why when something like gas goes up, everything costs more. Yeah, we gas is a big problem right now, isn't it? <laughs> well, it's weird because it went down and then we saw that the inflation rate actually went down along with it. So there's an interesting correlation. And I think that's something to tease out because people can say the economy is way too complicated and hard to understand. But I think it's actually really simple. It's just so many things going on that that's why uh, it's tough to plan it from the top down. But so, Jeff, tell us about our broken system, our broken system. Uh, yeah. So. You know, I was writing this piece today and I was thinking about the election system and the process and thinking about Madison's vision of holding the house accountable. And I realized, you know, I knock on a lot of doors. I talk to a lot of people left and right. And the one thing that I kind of hear from them is they don't trust the system, right? Whether it's people on the right complaining about, uh, you know, the, the illegal ballots or, um, George Soros's money or whatever, or people on the left talking about, um, what do they do? The, the, uh, the electoral college and voter suppression. What they're saying to us is we want to be heard. You know, congressional approvals are at a lowest, like historic lows, right? Yet they keep their job year after year. I mean, we have to ask ourselves, is that like the system that we want? Is that the election process that we really want? Um, and I contend, no, it's not. And it's not supposed to be this way. Um, so, you know, I, I go back and I think about, um, I think about the beginning, right? The first few elections, there wasn't really a lot of, uh, campaigning. There wasn't a lot of political advertising. Um, it was kind of the people that wanted to be informed were informed and they came out to vote. Um, Aaron Burr started campaigning, but it didn't really take hold. And then you've got it wasn't until the corrupt bargain, Andrew Jackson, he had like a vendetta against John Quincy Adams, and he partnered with Martin Van Buren, who created this very partisan um, political machine, and they expanded the vote out to the people. They started campaigning. Did Van Buren um, and that's kind create of where, that machine for his governor's race, or that was just for the presidential race? I believe that he, he created it for the governor's race. Then he got nominated secretary of state. I think he helped Jackson along the way the, in the first presidential election like with the whole thing i'm not you know there's a lot of history right a lot of nooks and crannies i, I got to dig a little deeper on that one but um i do know that it was his partisan machine right that they used and so for the next you know we, we started with no campaigning we started with like virtue and like let's hire the best guy and then we started like oh well they're corrupt you know not that john quincy was really corrupt what they did looked corrupt but maybe it wasn't maybe it's perception um and so Andrew Jackson has this vendetta. They expand it out to the people. For the next 40 years, or 40 or 60 years, you've just got partisan politics, campaigning, and, and party politics, really, until the Gilded Age. And then money came in, okay? So with the money, you got more corruption. And it eventually led to William McKinley's campaign in 1897, which was like the first really big, like, where they expanded out political advertising, okay? So, like, the corporations heavily influenced uh, McKinley, his policies, and getting him elected. They basically bought the election. And um, 
that kind of started our modern political process. And ever since then, it's been a, it's been a battle, this like three-pronged battle where the parties are trying to be in control, the people are trying to be in control, and the corporations are trying to be in control. And now we're left with the system where everything's focused towards fundraising. If you go into politics, you try to walk in the door, what do they tell you? You got to learn how to fundraise. You have to do, like learn a whole separate job. Like I walk in the door, I study politics, I study how to communicate, I do everything I believe that I need to do to be a great congressperson. And they're like, whoa, 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 you got to go back to school, you got to start over, you know, like, I'm a doctor, and now I got to learn how to be a, a marketer, too, right? Um, is that what we want our politicians being? Is that what we want them spending their time? Yeah, I mean, like, it's, that was a problem, I mean, when, when I ran for school board, the first thing you did was call your friends and relatives and try to get some money for them so that you can use that to get your campaign going so it's at every level and that's kind of that is the first advice you get that you need to go and start asking everyone you know for whatever amount they can give you so that you can spend it on whatever i think that's the other problem too is it the fundraising is the end goal it's not necessarily communicating people uh letting them know what your ideas are it's just what's the raw fundraising dollar because that feeds so many other parts of the machine in terms of uh, how people think you're successful. Yeah, I mean, you know, how many ads you have on Facebook determines like if you're a good candidate. How many signs you have on the road determines if you have a good candidate. You know how many people criticize me for like not putting out signs or not like advertising, but nobody criticized me about my ideas, right? Like it just like it got ignored in the system. Like it just it does, it baffles me that that's as a society we've decided that somehow you know, if you, you have to put out like a good looking political ad, if you want to be taken seriously, it's like, I want to be taken seriously because my ideas are serious and the process is a joke. Right. And, um, we have to like, as a society, we have to decide what do we want to be? Do we want our, we want to be a Republican government where the people have some sort of accountability over the representatives, or do we want to be this small plutocracy or oligarchy where there's a very small group of people who are very wealthy who kind of make all the decisions for us um i would say that i want to be a republican government like we were intended what do you think oh i completely agree with a small r republican where the the people make the decisions now it's not a democracy per se where everyone's getting a vote on the uh the local plebiscite or something um it's something where you as a, a voter you vote for someone to represent you to bring those ideas forward. I think that's key. And I think that's something we have to remember too. It's not, everyone talks about democracy, but the Republican aspect is you're, you are deferring some of your decision-making to someone that you trust. And that's where you would mention that virtue was one of those key things we looked for early in our Republic was we wanted someone we can trust up there because when something goes tough, when you're in a tough situation, you want to be able to trust that the person making that decision even if it certainly doesn't appear like they, they're making a decision that you would make, you wouldn't trust that they've got as much information as possible. They know what's going on and that they're making the best decision in those situations, in that context. Um, and that allows you to live your life and not have to worry about it all the time. Like we're kind of stuck in this hamster wheel now where it's 24 seven. Can you believe so-and-so did this? And did you see what that tweet was? And well, and that, and that's exactly it, right? Because so now you have this corrupt political process that's more about this the side hustle of fundraising than it is about actually putting out, you know finding good representation. So like, how do we how do we change that 
process? How do we fix the process to move us forward to elect, to get better representation? So I have, uh, I have two main things we have to do. Um, first is we have to expand the house. Okay. So like it'll break the districts down smaller. It'll bring the people closer to their representatives. Just imagine yourself in a room full of 50 people. Okay. And you're trying to get uh, your voice heard with the representative and you have a limited amount of time. Now imagine cutting that room in half to 25. You have the same amount of time. Don't you think you'd have a better chance of having your voice heard in that room? That's what we have to do with our districts. Bring the people closer to the representatives. And the next thing we have to do is we have to eliminate this like fundraising barrier, right? Right now, the communication. Oh, let me back up one second. We have to ask ourselves, right? What is our representative's job? And I believe that our representative's job is to do two things. Listen and inform. Um, they need to listen to the people, the concerned citizens who have something valuable to say, and they need to inform everyone of what's going on, what their policies are, what their beliefs are, so we can trust them just like you were talking about before. So, you know, now we move forward and we, we, we try to make it a job of communication, right? Listening and informing. And we cr cut out the middleman of advertising because right now that flow of of communication flows through the advertisers into the people and it's cut down because it's like oh that won't sell you know oh they won't understand that and and there's all these different reasons of why they say not to say certain things but what are they doing they're manipulating their policies and their opinions to get people to vote for them as opposed to actually just informing them right because advertising is a form of manipulation to a lesser degree and what their job is is to inform um so we need to, you know, instead of maybe you cut the districts in half, you have less people. And instead of the camp, uh, the candidates spending all their time fundraising, because they spend like 30 to 70% of their time fundraising, you focus that time in a set of like public discussions with the other candidates. You set it at a pre-fixed location and it's like three or four a week and anybody can show up and they can be, have their voice heard. And it'll be smaller groups, realistically. And you do a whole bunch of these. And uh, you know, it's not gonna cost a lot of money. You can record them, put them out to inform others, people that don't have anything to say, but they wanna know what's going on. They can listen to podcasts. Like we have, we have this great technology to reach all these people. And we, the party process is so dark and scary, right? Like you hide away. They basically say, hey, candidates, you go raise the money to let everybody know what's going on, as opposed to us setting prefix set of rules. So everybody knows to be there at that time, at that day, to hear the candidates and to vote at this and putting out the candidates information for them on a website which wouldn't cost that much money they say hey you got to raise all this money because why because the that power that money gets kept inside that political circle and it creates a barrier that keeps regular citizens citizens out so like that's my idea of how we fix it um it you know it, it was going to have to be tweaking and, and whatnot it's just spitballing at this point you know but i think we need to start talking about it like that's the most important part is we have to start creating an election process that elects better representatives, hands down. And it has to start like tomorrow. <laughs> well, I mean, it sounds like you're talking almost like the Lincoln-Douglas debates, and I'm, I'm just getting through uh, the team arrivals. And that's a fascinating book. But you think about Lincoln, you know, he was in the, Lincoln, the um, Illinois State House for a while, and then he made some unpopular decisions, and he eventually decided to leave office. And he was out of office for a while. And then when he ran for Senate, he had these debates all over, and he still he ran for two Senate campaigns and lost both of them. But in the process of going through that, th that debate with another candidate, trying to talk about ideas, 
he ended up creating a strong reputation for himself in the state. And that led him to get speaking engagements all over the country. And he actually was able to get his ideas across all through the country, even though he he lost that Senate campaign, those both the Senate campaigns. And but he was able to parlay that into enough of a reputation nationally that he could end up winning that Republican nomination in 1860. And I, I think that's kind of the I think that's what you're what you're thinking. Uh, that's what I'm thinking. And I think that's what's going to improve our country where we can get people with ideas and uh, and uh, the patience to, to go through that process and hopefully make everything better. Right. And and don't we want a candidate that's patient? Like, isn't isn't would that be a virtue? And then you brought up something very important about Lincoln here, right? Like you are reading Lincoln right now. I think about like, what do I want to know from a candidate? Like I'm a I am a citizen of District 10. And right now there's a congressional race going on right now. And uh, there are two people in office. One of them is Jennifer Wexton and one of, her is, one of them is Hung Kao. Like as an educated citizen who puts a lot of time into politics, the number one thing I'd like to know from both of those representatives, who do they read? Because if you study like the great ones, Lincoln, who did Lincoln read? Madison. He was big Lincoln, Shakespeare. Lincoln, well, he was big Shakespeare, but he also read Madison when it came to politics, right? And, and who did Madison read? Madison read everybody. Who did Adams read? He read Cicero. Who did Jefferson read? He read Epicurus. You can get an idea of where their foundation comes from, where their principles come from. And then you'll kind of know, like, if you go back and you read those and you can understand that, then you'll go, okay, I kind of think I know where they're going to go with this. I know their thought process at least a little bit, plus of what they're telling you today. And you can trust them a little bit more. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we don't ask candidates that anymore. Like, that's the crazy thing is like all great leaders have read past great leaders. And if you're not, then, you know, you haven't learned from all their successes or failures. Um, but, you know, I think I think it's really important we start talking about this. We start shaping the progress because right now in our society, I think we see kind of some not so great things going on. Right. And people mm -hmm. are starting to get a little little on edge and those if if people aren't heard those radical ideas that are out there about changing the electoral college and and doing all the stuff to to reshape our government away from what it was intended they're going to sound more rational to people the longer they're not heard so like i said it starts tomorrow right like we need to have this discussion nationally tomorrow so we can get ourselves moving in the right direction away from this authoritarian grip that is taking hold of us both on the right and the left because they're just scared and they can't be heard and they're willing to like fight it out now and um we don't have to do that like right we can just like expand the house and redo the election process and start getting better people like give the power back to the people right nancy yeah. pelosi has been in office long enough you know, like, let's give it back to the people for let's give us a, give, give me a chance. Right. Like if they don't want to do it. They don't believe in a Republican government. Then just leave. Let's study the job. We'll be happy to do it. Right. Mm -hmm. No, we, we've got a lot of people in uh, in leadership that uh, are just in it for the, the power and the glory. And they don't really want to solve the problems that they talk about on the campaign tree all the time. They're more concerned with how am I going to stay in this seat next time? What's going to get me reelected and reelected rather than what's going to put me in the best position to solve, you know, the, the problems in my neighborhood, the problems in my county, my state and our country and our world is uh, interesting. And I think it brings us back to our, our second topic, just how connected everything in the world is. Um, I don't know if you know this, Jeff, but gas prices are through the roof. 
At least they were. Uh, we went on a road trip down to North Carolina last week, and compared to a previous trip in the summer, the gas prices were actually lower. I think they were lower by about 30 to 40 cents. And it wasn't just local taxes. It was that, that gas prices had actually gone down. Um, and I, I think you can look at that and they say, that's great because that means that every time I take a trip in my car, it costs less money. But then you look at the most recent inflation numbers that were released and the, the talking points, of course, are that inflation is 0%, which is not true. But what happened was that inflation <laughs> as a percentage rate didn't actually go up. It stayed, I believe, around 9%. So that means that you've got something like gas prices um, affecting every single thing in the economy because when gas prices actually go down, um, that's going to have a deflationary effect on everything. And what that really comes down to, if you think of from the, the economics perspective, is this idea of cost of goods sold. So I, I came across this interesting article today from this woman who runs a clothing company out um, and she makes dresses and stuff. And But she actually broke down the cost of the dresses that her company makes. And it's it's a $154 dress that they sell and it's a BuzzFeed article. I'll find the link and put it in the show notes. Um, and it goes, it just breaks it down. It's like 19 bucks. That's fabric. Uh, there's the cost for the zipper. There's the cost for the cutting. There's actually the cost for storing the fabric in the warehouse. There's a cost, I think it's $32 for someone to go and actually cut that fabric and sew it all together so that you can get a dress. And at the end of the day, that, that adds up to about, I think it's like 70 bucks total. And so they're selling that dress for $154. And you can say, well, that's a crazy markup in there, but there's actually other costs in there. There's the cost of developing this dress as it is. You gotta actually come up with a bunch of different ideas, cut it, put it on a model, make sure it fits, make sure it looks good. And that whole cost, I think, breaks down to about $2,000 for, for this particular design. And then I think they sell about um, a couple hundred of those. And so that, that $2,000 gets cut up and it actually gets into amortized and sort of layered over all the costs of all those dresses. So um, if you think about just something like the, the cost of gas, where we have to pay for some someone to truck it, uh, truck the fabric, maybe from the factory to the the factory that produces the fabric to the factory that cuts the fabric. There's a cost in there that gets added on as that that those goods get go from point A to point B. Um, and I I mean I know this. I used to raise sheep in a previous life before I got into congressional politics. But um, <laughs> you know part of the 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 sheep themselves like I think I I spent about five hundred bucks. And I bought uh, a ram and two ewes. And then um, one of the great things about sheep is they just eat grass. So I had access to a nice field, but I had to I had to rent that field. So there was sort of that fixed cost of paying someone for um, the ability to leave my sheep in there in this enclosed area where they could graze. Um, and then, you know, I, I would shear that wool. I could pay someone to clean it or spin it. I could put that work in myself if I wanted to. And then... Eventually, someone's going to take that raw wool that's really the product of raw grass and uh, sun and water and uh, spin that. And then you get some beautiful yarns. And then you can take those yarns and you can weave those into something like socks. And so there's a lot of steps in, in just that, you know, if it's a $20 pair of socks that you, you get at Costco, 
that cost for wool is probably only a couple dollars. Um, but there's a lot of things that go into that, like, like that uh, is so elegantly put in that BuzzFeed article. It just there's the raw material. There's the person to run the machines to do that. There's the person that's designing the socks and maybe putting fun designs on that because that we're all about fun designs on socks these days. And I, I think it's, um, you can take the, just the raw cost that like, well, my grocery bill is so much more now. Um, it used to be $100 at the, at the grocery store every week. And now it's $120 because gas, or because um, milk's just a little bit more, because the vegetables are a little bit more, because the cereal's a little bit more. And you can tie that all back to how connected we are, where the fact that just the price of gas going up a dollar is going to not just mean that my trip to the grocery store is more expensive in terms of I got to pay for either if it's an electric car, I got to pay for electricity. But that a lot of that's comes uh, comes from some kind of fossil fuel. Yeah, uh, if it's fuel, yeah. the gas to power my car, but then it's the gas to get things to the store. It's the gas that goes into every single step of that process. And I think that's something we we tend not to really think about is of really how everything in our lives is is really connected where one small thing like gas going up by a dollar can have a, a big knock-on effect for the whole economy um, and you can even you can go further than that well so now i spend 20 extra dollars at the grocery store that means i've got 20 less dollars to spend on something else um, and that yeah. can mean that i'm not going to go to that coffee shop that i normally go or i'll go one less time a week and now that coffee shop has lost that business and now they're in a different situation where they have to consider their costs and um, we've got this it can truly be a, a, a downward spiral and I think um, I, I think that's you know we tend to call those recessions when well, everything sort of collapses like that well so like recessions are you know they're kind of part of the market, right? That it goes up, it goes down, you know, kind of the market self-corrects. Um, a lot of the recessions have been caused in past by bad policies, bad, you know, decisions by corporations, any ballot bailouts and all these things. But what always kind of brings you out of a recession is is kind of like small business capitalism, right? It's people competing in the market, realizing that there's an advantage to be made by finding a way to get something done cheaper, right? Because with all those connected parts and all the rise in prices, somebody out there is going to think of something or trying to think of something to stay competitive, right? Like I own a small business and I am trying to stay competitive. I'm revamping, I'm retooling, and I'm marketing in different ways because I know the market's changed and I have to, you know, what is capitalism? Capitalism is nature. I've got a great piece on capitalism, by the way. I mean, it. it's, it's um, experimental. It, you're experimenting. You've got an idea. You test it and then you you collect the data. If that's for you, it's if someone buys something from your store. And then if, if again, if someone doesn't buy something from your store, then you know that that wasn't a great ex an idea and you got to try something else. But it's Exactly. I think the, the whole idea of well, I follow the follow the science or something like there's an experimentation behind that that you're trying some idea and trying to improve. Yeah, I mean capitalism is all about, you know, creativeness and and competition and 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 you got to try and you got to fail and you got to keep going, right? And so that's typically what brings you out of it, right? So if you're out there and you're like, "Well, how can I help the economy?" Shop at a small business. That's how you can help the economy. That's what always brings the economy out, right? Because you're putting money closest to your community, right? And that's going to affect you quicker. Just like all those little things, you know, that coffee shop has less. Do it in your community. 
you know, it, every little business, the people that live there, the people that reinvest there, they are, you know, they're going to keep that money in the community. And if you're shopping there, you're helping your community better that way, drag, you know, pull yourself out. And that's kind of how our whole system, our Republican government with all the different ways, the capitalism where you break it apart, that's how we all function because we're this big, large nation and you break it down in small groups, right? And you work together as a team because that's how human beings function. That's how we work best. That's how we're successful. That's how we got here, right? Mm-hmm. Well, you think you talk, mentioned policies before. I mean, if you look at the the Great Recession of two thousand seven, that wasn't people weren't just buying houses because they wanted to buy houses. They were buying houses because there was a government uh, incentive for them to take out these loans that probably they should never have been able to get because they weren't in a financial state to really pay them off. And then we're in a this situation where you've got a, a very precarious banking system where you've got so much leverage where you get people borrowing money to buy something and then taking a loan out on that, which means you're borrowing more money based on that. And you've got, uh, uh, not, not, I hate the term house of cards, but you know, you've got one <laughs> level, you've borrowed money from that and you're building on top of that. So you've got so much, um, uh, so much of a vacuum inside there. And so as soon as you pop, you know, they talk about popping the bubble, as soon as you, apply some kind of force to that vacuum where people need to get their money back really quickly. They're going to find a way to get, to get their money back as fast. And that's when they're going to stop spending. They're going to suck that um, capital back in so that they're in a position where they're, they're not uh, so financially uh, off. And it just, it, it, you know, because, because you've leveraged yourself, because you built on top of each other, it all comes back on, on top of each other and collapses really quickly. Uh, and, and, you know, the people in charge are happy to bail out those who are going to donate to their campaign. Right. Exactly. And that's why we have to like, we got to do something about that too, right? That structure. Um, you know, I think part of that reason is because, you know, it's the same thing with our government. You're moving power so far away from the people. When you have such large corporations, um, you know, they really don't care about the local communities and how they build them up. Because a lot of times, like, corporations are going to, like, drive the local projects. Um, they can drive it through fundraising and whatnot. And then if the corporation decides to leave, the town suffers. Like, we saw this a lot, you know, early on with, like, steel mills and stuff like that. But nowadays, it can happen with all sorts of different retail chains. It could, like, a group of corporations can get together and put stuff together. And then, you know, like, look, I'm sure that look at the FedEx field, right? I think they're getting ready to move it. Look at all the stuff they built around FedEx field, right? And then FedEx field is going to be gone. Why are people going to go there? Like they'll turn it into an event, you know, whatever. But like that town that they built, it's probably going to suffer. And it's all dependent on basically the NFL, this large corporation. And then what do they do? They leverage that so they can get their new stadium built somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And they just, they dry that town up and they move somewhere else. Like they're, they're not really invested in the community. And that's why, you know, like corporations originally were like, they're limited and they were for five to 10 years or maybe even 20. And they were designed because, you know, we needed to do interstate commerce and it was to better the states, the local states, you know, each individually. But now they're, they're forever and they have all the like thanks to the supreme court they have all these rights they're like people now and you know <laughs> like but they don't care about the community like people like they don't live there you know and and they you know so we have to we've got to well they, they live too, in one you know? community like they'll you know and that tends to be like new york city if it's a corporate new headquarters york, and new so york they, california right they care a lot about that but then they 
have to sell outside of that market and they don't care about those markets. So they, they're not as in tune with the, the people that are supporting them out there. And, and yeah, I mean, you drive through a lot of towns that had some kind of business. Actually, going on our road trip to North Carolina, we passed some old RCA film restoration building and it's abandoned because no one uses film anymore. But I imagine that was a, a great set of jobs a long time ago. Um, and then once technology changed, the corporation said, well, for whatever reason, we've got this film restoration business in the middle of nowhere. We don't need that anymore. So we're gone. And then all those jobs go. And now that helps that starts to hollow out that local economy. And that has knock on effects all throughout. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes it's going to happen in the economy. Like what you're talking about is a change in technology. We're mm -hmm. progressing, you know, progressing. That's good. That's good for our society. We want to pro progress, right? But sometimes it happens just because the corporation like is not managing themselves well, you know, and they're not in tune with the, com the community like you were talking about. So, you know, I, you know, we can go into it all day and go back to the Supreme Court stuff. But uh, I think that if we want a more stable economy, we just have to have a more local economy, realistically. Yeah. And I think the technology point is right. So it's a film restoration company. Obviously, we, we don't use film in the same way if we use it at all. I think it's kind of a vintage thing, uh, technique at all, if anyone uses it. But if that was a local company that was responsible for film restoration, they could have seen the writing on the wall. And I'm sure they would have. And they said, well, our business is starting to trickle where we don't get as many people coming saying, please, can you restore this film? So maybe we should try something else. Maybe we should get more into digital video services or pivot our business, something that can help keep our employees employed, help them with their jobs and their families. And at the same time, you know, keep this business going if that's the case. And like you said, sometimes businesses fail and that is a natural, very natural part of, of the business cycle. Um, but if it's, if it is, if it's a local thing where the, the employees see that the business is, is slowly failing, they can, they can uh, try their own things and try to start their own businesses or come up with other ideas that can potentially supplant that. And, um, you know, in the same way that a, a forest fire it can lead to terrible devastation, but you get growth that comes out of that and you get a whole new forest that grows up in the ruins of that. Yeah, that's true. And that's, that's, that's what we do. That's what life is, right? It uh, ebb and flows, life and death rise from, from ashes and whatnot. And, uh, that's how we built our Republic originally. And, you know, even though the things are look bleak sometimes and they don't look the best, there's a lot of hope there. There's, you know, because there's always ideas. Like what I tell people is as long as you have your pen, right, then you have freedom, you know, and if, if they take away your pen, then you're in trouble because your pen is your voice. But as long as you have that, you have your voice, you have pen, you can kind of always find a way to repair things. Um, we just have to talk about them, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that's a, it's a good place for us to end today. What do you think, John? I think it's great, Jeff. I think this is good. <laughs> this was our first episode. Thank you so much for listening. Um, so John has written a, po a piece on his, and you're going to release yours Tuesday, right? Yeah, it's a plan. All if right, I'm going to release mine. If your publisher likes you, <laughs> um, and uh, so my piece is on uh, the the rig system and how we fix it, and I'm going to release that tomorrow. Um, you can read it, you can listen to it, you can share it. Let's get these topics talked about in the public square, right? Uh, we have voices. We're regular citizens. We have just a right as right to be heard as anybody else. Um, so help us do that. Um, 
John, and do you have anything you want to say? If you've got a problem with it, you know, tell us why we're wrong. I'd, I'd love to hear that. Yeah, let's have some discourse, right? Like that's what the point is. Um, yeah, so uh, I love it. Uh, thanks for joining. Thanks for co-hosting. And uh, thank you for listening, everybody. Peace and love. Thanks, guys.